Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation. We talk about his new book, Check Your Financial Privilege, and show how people in many developing countries are under a form of monetary imperialism. Learn how monetary oppression keeps people in those countries down. Alex Gladstein, it's the third time we're recording. You're my first guest where we've done three. How is everything going, man? An honor and a pleasure, sir. Things are going well. Riding high off the inspiring times in Miami. Amazing to see Bitcoin going mainstream. Obviously, pros and cons to that, but it's to be expected as we enter into an era where politicians and athletes and, you know, everybody starts using Bitcoin. It just, the scene is going to change. But I'm very grateful to see, you know, the focus on the open source stage and generally speaking, you know, continued focus on Bitcoin as a, you know, a tool that can help us through a lot of the problems that we're going to encounter over the coming couple of years and decades. Yeah, I and mean, certainly there were good aspects of the conference. But, you know, I got to say, I, I was a little bit disappointed. Just, you know, a lot of the altcoins that were there, I mean, Celsius had a whole booth and stuff like that. And there were... People talking about Bitcoin in a way, oh, we need to comply with the state and do everything they say. That was a little bit frustrating for me. I don't know about like how you saw it as like a human rights advocate, but that that's what it feel, felt like to me. Well, again, I think that you're going to have bleeding on the edges as we mm-hmm. get bigger. You know, it, it did feel more kind of conferency, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like a consensusy mm-hmm. thing, like in the media lounge, especially. And, you know, but... Again, I think this is inevitable. If Bitcoin's going to grow, everybody's going to use it. And, you know, I think that's a healthy thing. I think the organizers do an extremely good job trying to stay as focused as possible, which is which is really hard to do, given that they have 25,000 people there and some and then some some massive number of people who don't have a ticket who come just to Miami. Right. So <laughs> and you know what? There's going to be. NFT events and different kinds of altcoin events that pop up on the side just because it's a natural, you know, it's it's a natural thing, right? Mm. And I think, again, I think they did a pretty good job of just kind of staying straight. Obviously, I'm hugely grateful they allowed me to go up on stage with Yonmi Park and friends and talk about Bitcoin's freedom. And we got a lot of amazing feedback on that. And I mean, man, you know, what an opportunity to go up right after Peter Thiel, who <laughs> still doesn't understand lightning, but but at, at least he understands that Bitcoin will become really valuable in the next decade. So yeah, I mean, again, things change, but look, we got to do book signings. The community was strong. There were, you know, for every corporate bureaucrat, there was a Ronin Dojo, you know what I mean? Like, the, mm-hmm. you know, for every talk on regulation, there was a talk on, protecting the rights of Americans using Bitcoin for every talk on, you know, some sort of like, you know, wider crypto topic, there was a talk about how to make Bitcoin more private. So so again, I think they did an admirable job. And that that sense of getting bigger and more cloudy is I think a, an outcome of just um, the mainstreamization of Bitcoin in, in many ways. But yeah, I think that last year's event was much was much more kind of ideological or felt more like a Woodstock, you know what I mean? It felt like there was a mission there. <laughs> and, you know, it. I, I just think we're going to get too big for that kind of feeling, you know? So, but we can we can recreate that feeling in a lot of other places. And I, I think that the open source stage is still like very heavy signal, basically. It was, it was great. Mm. Matt, shout out, well, shout out to Matt O'Dell, who did a great job with that. Indeed. <laughs> but there, there is that tension, isn't there, between like sort of the you know, investment fiat bro, or I mean, like crypto bro kind of uh, mentality on one side. And then what you're trying to do with the human rights and like focusing it on the billions of people that are unbanked and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, that that to me is, is sort of at the heart of this separation and why, you know, it felt a little bit disappointing to me, because I wanted to hear more about like the stuff that you were talking about. And indeed, like, what we're going to talk about your book yeah. check your financial privilege like hits at the heart of that because for a lot of people they they only perceive it as this investment you know crypto bro kind of thing whereas you're making a very different argument yeah well in chapter 3 of the book i talk about mm-hmm. bitcoin's 
adoption mechanism. And, mm. you know, this is, this is part of that. It's like corporations and governments will join the Bitcoin standard because they, out of self-interest, all these corporations that you saw that you're kind of referencing five years ago, most of them were hating on Bitcoin or ignoring it. So <laughs> now they want to get a piece um, they want their customers to be able to interact with it. You see this both at the kind of, uh, let's say, you know, like traditional financial services platforms and other, I mean, and other cryptocurrencies. Like I thought it was interesting that, for example, you know, we've had all this debate about the Terra stablecoin thing, which I think is interesting. And then, you know, the apparently the biggest announcement at this huge kind of like alternative cryptocurrency event in Spain last month was was that this chain was going to like, you know, add Bitcoin or whatever as something that its, it's, it's users can interact with. So I think you're just going to see an inevitability of all kinds of people wanting to like attach to Bitcoin, use it in some way, whether it be mainstream Wall Street people or other, you know, cryptocurrency communities. I, I think that's probably a good thing. But it, you know, it comes with all of its, you know, all the hazards and you know, you got to be careful as we navigate this. I mean, look, I think all governments are eventually going <clears> to <throat> adopt Bitcoin in some way, shape or form. Does that mean I support what they're going to do? No, <laughs> I just think I just think <laughs> they're going to have to like this yeah. macro climate we're in of, you know, governments realizing that financial instruments that they were saving in are freezable is is a big one and will have massive ramifications and as they seek to diversify and I think eventually they'll land on Bitcoin as like a thing that they want, right? And and that'll go for all kinds of unsavory governments. Ditto all corporate treasuries, I think. So I just think we need to steal ourselves for that. And then we need to build communities and movements that are more human focused, right? And I think that's mm. that's something I'm really excited to do with the full knowledge that things are going to get increasingly messy and blurry, right? Mm. Indeed. Well, so let's go back to your book, because I love the title, Check Your Financial Privilege. I think this is some, something that you've more or less memed into existence. I think you're the guy that made it happen. So can you like talk about what financial privilege means and define it for our audience? Sure. And, you know, the backstory of the book was that in 2020, I... I just started interviewing people that I thought were interesting in the Bitcoin space. Mm. Many, many more people than, than actually went into the book. But I sat down for a couple hours with each person and just tried to get their story. Start. It was, it was really educational for me. I'm really grateful to everybody who gave me their time. It taught me a lot about all different kinds of Bitcoin uh, angles, both both like the hit when I was interviewing people who contributed to Bitcoin's history, Bitcoin history, the block size wars, all that. Uh, but also the users of Bitcoin, people inside countries like Iran, China, Venezuela, et cetera, just learning about like why did they turn to it and kind of the political backdrop. So growing up, I always read The New Yorker. I really liked long form journalism. I thought it was fun. I liked journalists being able to, you know, tell a story and get into personal details as opposed to just doing like a 1200 word op-ed or something. Mm -hmm. I really like long reporting. So that's what I tried to set out to do is that that these chapters would be you know, longer eight, five, six, seven, eight, or even 10 or 12,000 word pieces, which would really give a lot of detail to a particular topic hmm. and kind of focus on monetary history and then Bitcoin adoption. Those are the two themes that go through the book. And, you know, as I explore those, we, we kind of focus in on this idea of financial privilege. So what's clear is that only a small percentage of humans in the world have like a, a really well-functioning financial system. And it really could have been check your monetary privilege, but I wanted to make it a little broader. But the point is only a fraction of the world, you know, somewhere around a billion, a little more than a billion people, like low teen percentage, percentage of the world, 10, 11, 12%, you know, it kind of changes, but has access to a, what's called a reserve currency. So like a fiat currency that's that's trustable enough, let's say, that other central banks want to allocate some of their savings into it, right? So mm. You would have the dollar, the euro, the pound, the yen, uh, maybe maybe the Canadian and Australian dollars, and increasingly the yuan, I think. But then, then you have to think about so so. There's only some small percentage of people that are born into those stronger currencies that are that that don't face like an immediate realistic chance at like twenty, thirty percent inflation, right? Or at least we thought that way, right? Recently, until recently, and then you have to look at the people who live under property rights and un under kind of like let's say 
you know, reasonably secure property rights. And that's, again, a minority of the population. So 53, 54% of the world's population lives under kind of a kind of a straight up authoritarian regime, where where the government doesn't need to like justify anything, it can just take stuff. Now, they can certainly do the same in democracies, but there's just more checks and balances. Like there's, of course, eminent domain and Operation Choke Point we've heard here in the US. But generally speaking, you've got a lot more property rights in Texas than you have in Tibet. There, there's like a huge mm-hmm. gap, right? So the point is that that the overwhelming majority of people on this earth live in societies where the currency itself is like super weak, can't be trusted, financial systems broken, they can't easily connect with family abroad. And they don't really have any kind of legal recourse to protect themselves against, you know, confiscatory uh, policy by state or, or by other actors. So, you know, people in London and New York and San Francisco have financial privilege. They, they, they have a, just a much more robust system that they use. And that blinds them to the reality of everybody else. So this leads to the sort of conclusion and thesis of the book, which is that, like the critics of Bitcoin you know, often, you know, almost exclusively really in, in the end come from, from financial privilege. And, and again, this kind of blinds them from, from like, why would somebody want to use Bitcoin or how could it be helpful? So we need to check our financial privilege and then we can start to understand like why this is such an important tool. So that's kind of the TLDR. Mm. Well, you're certainly bringing that perspective in this book. But I want to touch a little bit on sort of the critics of Bitcoin sort of having that first world financial privilege and them not being aware of pretty much how it works everywhere else in the world. And, you know, using like the ESG narrative or something like that as a way to criticize Bitcoin Mm -hmm. without realizing, okay, you're taking away this tool of freedom from all of these other places. Why are they so ignorant of what's going on everywhere else? They seem almost entirely focused on what's going on in the Western world and not anything that's going on in the rest of the world where the vast majority of people are. I don't know, man. It's difficult. I mean, today it was revealed that Wikipedia essentially is going to stop accepting Bitcoin and cryptocurrency donations because of the ESG stuff. And it's like... How insane is that? Like, like a project built for open knowledge, right? Mm. It's going to stop its supporters from donating to it with open money because of disinformation and scare tactics from corporations and governments. Like that's kind of where we are today. And the people pushing for the, you know, frothing at the mouth to ban Bitcoin. I mean, they, you know, not only do they have, I'm almost certain immense financial privilege, that's almost a given, but that, that they've also allowed themselves to be swayed by this kind of disinfo and like that Bitcoin's bad, right? And that is going to be a very popular thing that we encounter over the coming few years is this like reactionary force to Bitcoin, kind of a, an establishmentarian mob mentality that says we must burn this thing down because we don't see any value in it. And that's dangerous. So, you know, it's dangerous because it hurts people. It's dangerous because obviously it'd be better if Wikipedia could take Bitcoin donations and develop a Bitcoin strategy. It'd be a much better resource for the world. So it's actually important to address this issue of financial privilege and then fight back because the next few years are going to be pivotal in terms of Bitcoin adoption, its increase in value. And, you know, we don't want people to be, you know, unnecessarily left out of this thing, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think we got to take the fight to them, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, we'll certainly talk more about that as we go along. But I love the layout of this book. You're talking about financial privilege and then, you know, how Bitcoin came into existence and sort of the hidden costs of the current, you know, dollar hegemony, basically. But chapter four is very interesting to me. Uh, Bitcoin is the Trojan horse for freedom. Mm-hmm. And this is the, you know, why don't you just explain what it is and sure. you know how this idea came about? Yeah, well, look, it's obviously an idea that's been, you know, I'd say it's, around, it's been around Bitcoin since, since near the beginning. There's some good kind of Bitcoin talk posts that people kind of thought that this is how it would play out. And, you know, essentially that people would adopt Bitcoin not knowing what it was, right? So in this chapter, I've tried to flesh out the detail there of like using the 
parable, right, from the Aeneid of of this like Trojan horse, where like brute basically brute force couldn't work to take the city, right? So mm. the Greeks were trying to take Troy for ten years; they couldn't do it. Odys- you know, Odysseus had this uh, sort of eureka moment, which was implanted in his brain by a god, Minerva, of course. Mm. But the point is, he was like, "Oh my God, we should just like trick them. We should use subterfuge." So they mm. like tricked the Trojans into like thinking that this big horse they built was this beautiful, you know, basically like a gift. And the Trojans, even though what was interesting is there were Trojans who, um, in the story, there were Trojans who said, no, 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 this is obviously fake, right? (laughs) So like, this is gonna take our power away from us. Like, don't do this. But like the mob was like, no, 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 this is great. Let's bring it in. So they bring the horse in. Of course, there's Greeks and the horse that come out at night and sack the city. So the point is that, you know, over the decades, people use this terminology to describe like, you know, computer viruses that look fine, but they end up being malicious. So my point was that like, in if you're going to try to change the dollar system, fiat currency, central banking system, I don't think it can be taken by force or like, I don't think it could be taken or changed in a straightforward way. I believe it was, there's that clip of, is it Friedman or Hayek? I can't remember where he says, there's a clip of him from the early eighties saying something like, you know, we'd have to invent a roundabout way, right? A sly roundabout way to replace a government money, right? And I think that's the point is that you develop this asset, you bootstrap it, you make it decentralized, and you you build a value mechanism into it that basically outcompetes fiat money that becomes more valuable over time. And in that sense, like people out of their own self-interest will start getting some, again, whether it be corporations, governments, whomever, without really, you know, without caring about what other things it does to humanity, they're going to be forced to participate is my thesis. So you go and you buy a bunch of Bitcoin for your corporate balance sheet because you don't want the melting ice cube of fiat. Well, guess what? You're supporting cypherpunk freedom technology, but that's not what you're going to tell your board, right? You're not going to sit there and talk to your board about coin joins and lightning network. (laughs) You know, a nation state is going to adopt Bitcoin. We see this in El Salvador. Well, guess what? You know, you're, you're probably not focusing on the fact that that allows citizens to have parallel banking and financial services that you can't control. If the Russians indeed accept, if they decide to accept Bitcoin for oil, for example, something like that, you know, again, that they might find a short-term value in that. But like to the medium to long-term, what they may not be thinking about is that that's going to cause like an explosion of Bitcoin adoption in their country. And then, you know, essentially... Putin will have less control over the people. I mean, dictators need monetary and financial control to stay in power in a way that the uh, you know population, you know, if the population doesn't agree, right? If there's no consensus, they, they have to f- use force. So what's interesting is like, I think that in the end, Bitcoin is this Trojan horse. It kind of buries itself into the heart of these systems that are oppressive. And then it helps liberate them. Because at the end of the day, you know, you think about the Chinese Communist Party, for example, like, what do they need? They need censorship, they need confiscation, and they need closed capital markets to make their system work. Well, Bitcoin's free speech, private property, and open capital markets. So it's not going to be very good for dictators. Mm. But they're going to bring it into the city gates was my thesis. Again, corporations and governments are going to like want this thing for its digital gold attributes. It's very shiny and beautiful. They're going to want it, but they won't be able to separate its value proposition from its like radical freedom upside. This is what I believe. I think Satoshi saw how gold was killed by governments, which, which of course I detail in my, in my book. And then from there, you know, they figured out a way to avoid the fate of gold and basically make it so that the people held the keys to power as opposed to governments. So that's the thesis in a nutshell. Hmm. Yeah, and and it's an interesting idea that we can actually subvert and take over the global reserve currency through this sort of Trojan horse way. It's going to happen. It's like really yeah. crazy. It's probably going to happen. And it's like, it's so insane that something went from a message board uh, topic and something that really was like in the mind of like science fiction writers to probably the reality. I mean, it's really, it's just a, de- a very profound thing. Mm. And, you know, you point out like what happened on Bitcoin Beach, but that to me is like absolutely stunning that it went from a tiny 
place within El Salvador to the whole country within like a year and a half. That's so crazy. Yeah, I think, okay, so you had a guy, I mean, you had, mm-hmm. there was a couple things that had to happen there. But, you know, obviously, first and foremost, you had to have the pilot, right? Mm-hmm. You had to have this ama- amazing community that you visited that obviously Jorge and Jimbera and Mike had built. You had to have a, a community that believed in each other, that had a certain amount of social capital, that trusted people when they said, let's go and use this, let's try this thing out. You had to have the open mind, you had to have the donor, you know, to sort of make it a option. You had to have the open mindedness of the three of those guys, plus the other community leaders to try it. A lot of, a lot of things had to go right, but ultimately, you know, as it started to just become a thing, I think it became like harder and harder for the government to ignore. And I I know that Bukele had been like probably open-minded to Bitcoin or or cryptocurrency. Uh, He tweeted about it, I think five years ago, something like that. But like, it wasn't like, that's it. It was like one tweet. And, you know, we know that he was thinking about a, um, a, like a CBDC type thing as well. That was like heavily reported last year. So who knows what route he could have taken, but he saw this like chance, right? He saw this thing and he was like, wow, this is how, I mean, he started sending his ministers down to El Zante. You can kind of, this is all the history of this It's all well-documented. And again, you talk to someone like Mike Peterson and they, they say that at first the government was like, eh, and then like all of a sudden they got a lot more interested, right? So there was some sort of like change they saw and they, they obviously believed in this and that it could do something good for them or for the country, depending on how charitable you want to be to them. But the point is that, yeah, it was this sort of like really unique combination of ingredients that that went into this magical soup <laughs> that where like it was <laughs> able to, to, to happen in this way. But the point of like my chapter, I think in El Salvador is that it was really a grassroots thing in the beginning. And that's, that resonates so cleanly with what Bitcoin's going to do. Like ultimately it was Bukele who forced it through given his supermajority in parliament, but he wouldn't, I don't think he would have done it without this sort of grassroots movement and pilot to begin with, or it wouldn't have been Bitcoin. It would have been crypto mm-hmm. legal tax, some, something like that, you know? And obviously mm-hmm. he was courted by all the crypto people and Deserves credit for choosing Bitcoin 100% all the way. It was a very smart decision. But I, I try to strike this balance of like trying to show the reader that there was this uh, community behind this thing that was grassroots and needs to be understood to get the full picture of what happened down there. Hmm. And it kind of shows like that Trojan horse effect, at least as far as I can tell. Like it gets into this community and next thing you know, it's within the whole country. And Little things like that have a way of sort of blowing up and making everything Bitcoin-y wherever you see Bitcoin is, you know, it goes into a tiny community, somehow it goes to the entire country. And that that was the Trojan horse. Like you said, it's possible that Bukele would have chosen something else. He was looking for alternatives already. Exactly. But because this Trojan horse was already there, it, it was... Oh, okay. We're going to go with this. And that, that to me was very interesting about the case. Yeah. I mean, look, he reached out to Jack Mahler's, not Brock Pierce. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. like it was Mm -hmm. very intentional and that came from Bitcoin beach, not, not crypto beach, right? Like it kind of mattered. So yeah, I think, look, I view Bitcoin as this benevolent virus, basically. Mm -hmm. And and, and it it, it kind of, you know how viruses will leap from one species to another, or like we'll get Mm -hmm. a virus that goes from a bat to a human or whatever. And then it it, like changes in intensity, et cetera different species have different like resistances to different viruses. You know, I think you're going to see something like that here where, yeah, like Bitcoin made its leap. Like it leapt from individuals to nation states like that in 2021. Like that's a pretty massive thing. Now, it doesn't mean that there's going to be immediately this domino effect. I think that people got a little excited there. Similarly, it made the, it made the leap from individuals to corporate treasuries in 2020 with Mm. Michael Saylor. And Again, I think people, I think a lot of people expected that there'd be a lot more corporate treasury adoption today. Now, there, there is a fair amount, of course, but like, I think people thought there'd be a lot more by now, but it's slow, but steady, the process. And I think you're going to see the same for nation states. Like, it's just, you have the Ukraine thing, which is insane. They're raising all this money with Bitcoin. You have sovereign wealth funds start to be exposed to it in different ways. It's, we're clearly going in a certain direction. Even governments that are against it are either getting defeated by it or they're being forced to change their tune based on Bitcoin's persistent performance. Like, I'll give you two examples. The Chinese government tried to like, you know, 
I don't know. I don't know what it tried to do, but it definitely like <laughs> took out 60 plus percent, maybe 70 plus percent of the Bitcoin hash rate. Mm. And guess what? We now are like at an all time high hash rate, right? So it, it didn't succeed in getting rid of Bitcoin. All it succeeded in was shooting itself in the foot and giving up its its hash rate dominance, which is kind of an amazing blunder. And then the other one was, uh, I mean, just just a couple of days ago, Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, you know, the highest ranking official in the United States for economic and financial policy, you know, gives this speech about how broken the financial system is and kind of amazingly, you know, goes into detail about Bitcoin and, and the white paper. And like, I, you know, it's I, I thought it was interesting because it's different from like what Christine Lagarde is saying. Like I'm not sitting here saying that they're going to like in in any way be favorable to Bitcoin, but I thought it was a nod to maybe it's people like whether it be Ted Cruz or other politicians who are really prominent, who are like talking about Bitcoin a lot, or maybe it's a nod to corporations and Bitcoin lobbyists, who knows? But the point is that like, or it's a nod just to the general inevitability of it. But like, I thought it was really interesting to see the discrepancy between Yellen and, and Lagarde. Like Lagarde is still on the like, this is for criminals. We must destroy it. That That's her kind of vibe. And while Yellen might have been like that a couple of years ago, I mean, she's like, yeah, she's basically like, it's not the new Fed line. The new government line and the Fed line is is like, is that it's it's not going to be a currency. That's That's their new line. But they're not seeking to discredit it as an asset. If you listen to what Powell says or Yellen says, et cetera, they're basically seeding ground and saying that it's going to be, it's going to be here. It's a novel invention and Americans want it. Like, and I think that's kind of an amazing, that's amazing progress. Now, again, I think they're wrong wanting to control it and that it's not going to be a currency and all these things, but it's amazing to see what this open source project has, has done. I mean, from Satoshi's brain to the treasury secretary's mouth in 13 years is is insane. Well, and that's the really remarkable thing. It somehow Trojan horsed itself into the treasury secretary's mouth. How, <laughs> how did that happen? Like what's she looking at that? I don't it's, know. Uh, it, she's speaking good things but again, about it. I, again, well, and again, she, she, you know, she talks about it and then she says, well, it's not likely to become a currency, but she doesn't mm-hmm. go out, you know, Again, this is a speech she gave like six days ago. This is very fresh. Mm-hmm. She doesn't attack proof of work. She doesn't talk mm-hmm. about the environment. She doesn't talk about criminals. Like it's as for, for the Treasury Secretary of the United States, it's an extremely positive take on Bitcoin. And that's her most recent take. So I guess the Ripple stuff's not working. The Ripple FUD is not working. <laughs> let's put it that way. She didn't talk about Ripple. Let's put it that way. Mm. I bet Chris Larson well, what, was I bet Chris Larson was very upset by that speech, is all I gotta say. Yeah. What's up with Ripple? Because that to me is a... Uh... It's a strange thing to come out as sort of like the villain in this whole ESG narrative scenario. Uh, like Chris Larson was like sort of like this, you know, villain in the back that no one knew was there. And he goes in ahead and tells everyone, hey, I've donated $5 million to Greenpeace. I mean, is this like a blunder? What's going on here? Yeah, I think that he's got a massive financial incentive to attack Bitcoin to get the U.S. government to ban proof of work and to try and unload his tokens on more banks. I mean, this is really (laughs) clear. It's not going to work, man. Sorry, Chris. I mean, he's being investigated at the same time by the U.S. government for fraud, et cetera, securities fraud. Good luck. I mean, you know, it's not going to treat you well in history to attack Bitcoin. Like it's not going to work very well for you or your reputation. So it's kind of sad to see, but they're very effective. You know, they've gotten into the minds of Everybody who hasn't paid Bitcoin very much attention because of the media and the government's line on it over the last decade plus, the initial surface level take of the average person about Bitcoin is negative because Mm -hmm. the media has been criticizing it for so long and so consistently and so homogeneously, like just like the position is just this thing is bad for a variety of reasons. So Chris is able to, and Ripple people are able to like get into that and then that's a seed and then they can grow it. into like a tree. So they're like getting in there and they're feeding it water and they're growing it. And then they can go into these NGOs that are again, naturally hesitant and they can like really stoke the fire. So it's an amazingly effective thing. Like he's been able to convince all kinds of people who, who clearly have no knowledge about how Bitcoin actually works 
that it's like really bad for people over the environment or whatever. So I don't know. I'm looking forward to that chapter being over, but it's going to be a struggle. I mean, just, you know, and look, Bitcoin, I think the Bitcoin network will be just fine, but people aren't going to be fine and they're going to let be led astray. And especially progressive people, I think, and I'm not sitting here saying that all libertarians or conservatives understand Bitcoin far from it, but there obviously has been like more of an uptake on that side of things. I, I think you're starting to see a lot more Democrats actually Rokana and a bunch of others in America, at least be open to this. But generally speaking, it, the left has sort of lagged here. And the book was really, hopefully, a tool whereby we could show that this thing is a progressive revolution as much as anything else. I mean, it's a, it's about neutrality and the fact that Bitcoin can't discriminate. And it's about how Bitcoin's anti-colonial. I thought Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, you know, he was in Miami and he very kindly mentioned me in his talk, but I think he's, he's turning into an incredibly eloquent advocate for Bitcoin. And he's basically like, listen, man, he says it's, it, it fights censorship, it fights colonialism, it fights imperialism, it, it fights the surveillance state, it fights all the things that he cares about, you know? And I think to hear kind of a, you know, I would say, you know, more, you know, prog obviously progressive left-wing kind of voice say that is very powerful. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that. And I hope the book can help in, in that regard. Yeah, and that is really an interesting point that you're making, that it's not being taken up on the left a little bit, probably due to some of this ESG totally. flood and things 100%. like that. Uh, well, so what do you hope that, you know, the progressives that read your book, what perspective do you hope to change in, in them so that they're not sort of getting deceived by this FUD? Well, just to read the stories of these people in mm -hmm. these countries, whether it's Nigeria or Afghanistan or Palestine or Cuba... I chose these countries in particular, and I wanted to show that like countries that have been hurt by the United States or that are adversarial to the United States and its allies, I wanted to show that the people living under those countries are are benefiting from this thing. And you know, if you have this worldview that maybe America hasn't been the best force in the world, then look, I, I think I have a nuanced view on that. I think American ideals are amazing, but I think the outcome and execution has been sloppy. I have a whole kind of chapter on America and Bitcoin where I interview an, an Iraqi immigrant and an Africa, sort of African-American, Native American Bitcoin users. And uh, we kind of dig into this, but I just think that we need to be empathetic towards people who, who live in countries that have been screwed over by our government. And, and it's hard to help. I mean, what are you really going to do? Like do a Twitter hashtag thing? Like I have a piece on this in the <laughs> Palestine chapter. Like it's like virtue signaling, like what, you know, free Palestine. What's that really going to do for somebody? Very little, if nothing at all. But what if you can teach somebody how to use Bitcoin? I mean, that's a massive individual personal empowerment, right? So I just kind of think that, and look, I'm someone who spent 15 years in human rights activism. I think there's the there's right ways to do it. It can be very effective. It's very inspiring. It can change the world. But I mean, Bitcoin just, in my view, takes it almost to the next level, like in terms of your ability to actually meaningfully make a difference in someone's life around the world, if you can teach them how to use this thing. So that's, you know, I think it's almost like the new wave of activism is helping somebody understand Bitcoin. Mm. And that's something that you're definitely focused on with, uh, you know, the Human Rights uh, Forum uh, Foundation and uh, the Oslo Freedom Forum. How is the uptake among human rights activists? Because obviously you and I have been working on this uh, quite a while. Are they embracing it and are they using it as a tool, a tool of freedom? Are they seeing it for what it is or, it, you know, is it lagging? What's the sort of current state of progress there? I think it's it's improving. I mean, it's it's starting from zero, like everybody else. Mm. It's slow. I would say that, like, you know, two years ago it was almost at zero. Still, mm. I hope we can make a difference there at the Oslo Freedom Forum next month and at, at other events we're going to be doing. And I think we will. And I think that, I mean, look, I mean, the people I was on stage with in Oslo, uh, rather, and in Miami, ha have come to their own, you know, understanding of the importance of Bitcoin. I helped them kind of, let's say, see the possibility. And then, you know, they then manifest their own interpretation of why it's important, which is amazing. I mean, that's, that's what happened with me, right? Like people showed me the way, right? So 
I think that if we can show the way to the human rights defenders of the world, they will jump on this thing and they will push it in directions that we can't even imagine. But once they grasp really what it is, this like neutral open money that's that can't be colonized, that can't be canceled. I mean, it's just, it's so cool. So I think we want to share that. And we're going to do that through our work at HRF, you know, on an ongoing basis, even as other groups are going to get, you know, swayed by the virtue signaling and, and the mob and all that stuff. So it'll be interesting to see how it, how it plays out. Mm. Yeah, and that's certainly happening at sort of like a micro level almost where, you know, these individual human rights activists are using Bitcoin for, you know, the purposes of, you know, subverting the evil governments that they're under and so on. But let's talk a little bit more about sort of the content of the book. Um, In chapter seven, you talk about Palestine. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what being a Palestinian is like and you know, the financial oppression that they're under as a result of being Palestinian. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not Palestinian. So all I can do is Mm -hmm. speak to the uh, stories I was told and that I observed Mm -hmm. from Palestinians. But what was amazing to me is when you see something through the monetary lens, you really start to appreciate the full picture. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, look, I mean, I've been looking at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for for a long time. And I thought it was, I thought the situation of Palestinians was bad, but I did not know how bad. And I did not know how structural it was. And then I I would never have known that really, unless I'd looked at the situation from a monetary point of view and from a financial and economic point of view. And really what I saw there, and this this sucks. I mean, I'm someone who believes very much in the state of Israel and in the, the project of giving a home to the Jewish people. So it's it's a conflict, but I mean, it's been really, you know, poorly executed to the point where the Israeli military is just, you know, infecting, inflicting tremendous suffering on all kinds of people. And, and the counterparts who are, you know, at least in charge of the West Bank are almost like this proxy state where they work together to oppress the people. It's extremely sad. And my whole point of this chapter that I kind of try to take the takeaway is that I don't know for how are you going to get change? Like we've had no change for so many years, like maybe we can at least help individuals inside Palestine, like build this like circular economy, this parallel economy. But what I learned about was basically the way that from 67 to 87, you had 20 years of Israeli military occupation in the territory in the Palestinian in Palestine. And it was premised on like a, a particular like strategy that the Israelis had where they wanted essentially the Palestinians to become dependent on Israel. So basically what they would do is try to shrink the agricultural and industrial base of Palestine Mm -hmm. through a variety of tactics, including making like local produce, like they would like subsidize Israeli produce and bring it into the West Bank so that the farmers like couldn't work in that field. Mm -hmm. And they would use those kind of tactics. And what ended up happening is over these 20 years, basically Palestinians would work in Israel and build things for the Israelis. And then they would come home and they wouldn't be building anything at home. So kind of the Palestinian economic state, like just shrunk. It's, it actually shrunk over many decades. States are supposed to grow, right? States are supposed Mm -hmm. to grow over time as, as we become more productive as humans with new technology and new tactics and things like that. But Palestine has shrunk in terms of its economic engine. So that was a really brutal realization to, to understand that was kind of the goal of the occupation for those first 20 years. And then once you had the Intifada in the late 80s, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, it's a bunch of terrorists. But, you know, in the reality, the Intifada was like a sovereignty movement. It was basically a movement of people who said at first, at least, let's grow our own food and let's actually cut the dependence on the Israeli economy. That was like the premise of, of the first Intifada. And unfortunately, it had a bad outcome because what happened is it got big enough that Israeli couldn't, Israel couldn't ignore it. And, you know, they brought them to the table, right? So you had these Oslo Accords, but what ended up happening is that they, the, the, the Palestinian authorities, Arafat in particular, traded off economic freedom for political freedom or, or this political mm. independence, right? And everybody, you know, they all got Nobel Peace Prizes and all this stuff. But in reality, what happened is that is Israel ended up controlling imports, exports, the currency, the central bank, everything. everything. Mm -hmm. So they use shekels. um, Israelis get to decide what goes in and goes out. So all these things were seeded away as part of this negotiation. It was part of a document called the Paris Protocol that even a lot of Palestinians don't know about. It's kind of hidden. 
And this thing was supposed to expire in 99. It didn't. It's still inactive. It's still active today. And what it's essentially ensured was that like the Palestinians could never really stand up on their own. And, you know, then you in, the, in Gaza, it's like an even more insane version of that. Like it's not only do you have like this dependency on Israel for jobs, but then then because of like uh, different policies, like they basically got cut off entirely from from Israel. So now they can't even work there anymore. There's like two entry points, like basically the capital stock this idea that Alan Farrington writes a lot about, like of a society, like that you kind of think of a society like a farm, right? Where you need productive soil, right? And you want kind of think of capital as productive soil that you can grow things on for future abundance. This basically all got strip mined out of Gaza. So so the capital stock of this place has, has again, has shrunk. The real GDP has shrunk. The real per capita income has shrunk, even as the society grows in terms of number of people. This has caused tremendous human suffering. So, I mean, the place is a total disaster. Like they don't have clean drinking water. They don't have any way to like grow food and sell it. Like they don't have any of the like services that, that we have. So doing this story made me understand all these things from a monetary and financial point of view, which made it much more devastating than my previous understanding of, of the plight of these people. And, you know, it also made me understand the role Bitcoin could play. Like when I interviewed this guy in Gaza, who's like, I mean, he's telling me people are selling their homes for Bitcoin because they think the housing market's going to go to zero there because who wants to buy a piece of property if it could be blown up by a missile, like, you know, at mm. any point. But he says, listen, I'm saving up in Bitcoin and I'm getting out of here. You know, it's like this is, he told me this was like his ticket to freedom. And that was like a really powerful mm. thing. So, hey man, it just, it shows you that like, even in the most difficult scenarios, Bitcoin can thrive and can help people. Mm. Well, it's interesting to me how you sort of characterize that whole Israel-Palestine relationship, because at least for me, when thinking about the U.S.'s relationship with a lot of Central American countries, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're talking about like people coming to build stuff in Israel and not in their home. That's basically what's happened all over Central America, right? Like there are Mexican laborers that come into the U.S. to build, you know, homes and maintain gardens for totally. people. And like not building in their own home. It's kind of crazy, the parallels there are. Yeah, and I think the whole chapter I did on the French monetary colonialism in Africa has a huge number of dovetails with the Israeli-Palestinian issue and, and chapter. And yeah, it's similar. Like the French basically used these countries as like a plantation where they would harvest goods for lower than market price and then use them to create finished goods, which, which they would then sell back to these countries at a higher than market price. And they would basically do this for decades. And it, it shrunk, again, it shrinks the productive capacity of these states. It's, it's extremely cruel. I mean, you know, I, I think that in a lot of ways, like colonial theory or dependency theory, I mean, these theories and ideas have been kind of sidelined to the fringe of history books or whatever. And ironically, it's usually Marxists who are usually you know, parroting these talking points, but the reality is they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're real. Like these are mm. things that happened. I know they're difficult for us to swallow because it, it makes us have to question our own, you know, where we come from and how we got here, etc. especially as some, as Americans or as French or as Israelis, but like we need to acknowledge these realities. I mean, our success is very much built by the exploitation of other people. And I think that that is, part of the fiat system in many ways. And I think that Bitcoin can can help address some of that, like on a macro structural way over the next many decades. Like, I think it just gives people more power. And, you know, certainly isn't going to fix all of the problems in the world or anything close to it. But it's kind of is going to kind of change certain like social dynamics and economic dynamics that I think will be much more favorable for for the vulnerable around the world. Hmm. Well, what do you think of uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative? Is, is that really a form of monetary imperialism as well? Or is that something completely? Well, I, I up until today, as far as I understand it, ironically, most of the contracts in that are done in dollars. So hmm. you still have this issue of the yuan not being trusted. Hmm. But as be, as pointed out by like, this Credit Suisse guy, Zoltan Posar, who I think is like a brilliant macroeconomic thinker. He's talking about how now we're in Bretton Woods 3. So he's saying Bretton Woods 1 was 44 to 71 dollar backed by gold. Bretton Woods 2, 71 to 2022. Basically, people saving in US treasuries as the like most important money in the world. 
Mm. And then 2022 onwards, we're in Bretton Woods three, we're like countries are going to diversify away from that. They're going to save in gold. They're going to save in commodities. They're going to save in yuan and, you know, maybe Bitcoin, right? So I would urge people to read his stuff. The latest one he came out with two days ago was an incredible banger. Like, I mean, this guy's just on fire right now. So read everything he writes. And it's amazing because he's like trusted on Wall Street. Everybody on Wall Street reads him. So they're all reading about like the end of the dollar hegemony and the beginning <laughs> of like the, you know, basically he says you can't print oil to heat or wheat to eat. That's like his mm -hmm. thing. And I think he's basically just affirming a lot of these things that Bitcoiners have been saying for a long time. So he's not a full-throated Bitcoiner. He does mention that Bitcoin, he thinks Bitcoin specifically will do very well if, if it survives, he says. But, but like, I mean, generally speaking, incredible that he would say that at all for someone who's kind mm -hmm. of so like traditional. But the point of all this is that I think that in, in this sort of era, we are, you know, the, you know, times are sort of changing and it is much more likely that we're going to enter into an era where some of these exploitative structures start to start to fray and collapse. And I, I don't think Bitcoin was the trigger, right? It wasn't the iceberg. But it was, it's but it's the lifeboat, right? So mm. it's a way that this this whole beast of a system is just lumbering to a collapse. Basically, this post seventy one political economy system is you know this Frankenstein thing is like it was juiced up for as long as they could juice it up, and it's just running out of steam. You know, it's just obviously running out of steam. It's going to fall. It's going to collapse. But at least we have a lifeboat. You know, and I think that that's ultimately one of the greatest legacies of Satoshi will be providing people a way out of this collapsing system. Hmm. Well, so just to go back to the question, is China trying to become a monetary imperialist or what are they doing? What's their sort of end game in this all? Whole yeah, thing? I, I don't know if they get that far, but they, they definitely mm -hmm. want more people to use the yuan. They're definitely setting up an infrastructure. Unfor you know, unfortunately for them and fortunately for, for maybe a lot of others, including you know, I'm certainly not rooting for the CCP. They're, they're a horrible, wicked government. But like, basically, the point is that a lot of it was like flimsy and fraudulent. A lot of their infrastructure stuff, they have a massive housing bubble. I mean, insane housing bubble right now. A lot of it's just sort of built on sand. So, so we'll see. I do agree with Zoltan and his theory. I mean, he basically says, regard, you know, we may not trust the yuan, but like the RMB will become, it'll become more serious and more significant in the future. And yeah, of course, China will try to do the monetary imperialism thing as much as it can. But I, I, I don't know if it, you know, thankfully we have Bitcoin basically to push back. And I just think that once people start to understand what Bitcoin is practically, not from a money point of view necessarily, but practically what is it? And it's like digital outside money. There's no other digital outside money in the world. Everything, I mean, outside money would be gold and inside money is, is like, let's say US treasury. There's every other digital asset or if currency is inside money, either it can be frozen or it's, or it can be, or the rules can be changed. So even Ethereum, which is like, you know, arguably the second most decentralized crypto asset or whatever. I mean, we have no idea how much is going to be printed in two years and the consensus mm -hmm. mechanism is changing and it's all dynamic. And we don't, you know, this, the answer is we don't know. So, and everything else is downstream from there with Bitcoin. We have predictable predetermined outside money that people can rely on. And once people understand that, I mean, man, it's just like, it's like the perfect central bank reserve asset. So I just think that like in this environment where the U.S.'s system is fraying, the dollar system is fraying, maybe the Chinese are rising a little bit, like, you know, people will be able to have a way out. Like we're not inevitably going to have to live in the Chinese world is what I'm saying. Like there's going to be options. Hmm. All right. So I do want to cover this one more thing before I let you go. Super imperialism. Can you explain the concept? Yeah. Well, kind of on the themes we've been touching on in our chat, like the world used to run on asset money That is kind mm -hmm. of the idea behind super imperialism. It used to basically run on gold as, as a kind of internationally, at least in the international balance of payment system, central banks used to communicate with one another using gold, using positions of gold. And this had a natural kind of balancing effect where if, you know, if someone's currency is someone's fiat currency, again, these fiat currencies were pegged to a certain amount of gold, right? Mm. Some sort of redeemability, right? And if your fiat currency got too strong, well, your exports would become uncompetitive and therefore your currency would start to weaken. And it was this natural balancing effect under the gold let's say the gold standard or the gold exchange standard, right? 
And if your currency got too weak, you'd start selling a ton of stuff and, and then your and then your economy would grow stronger. And there was this beautiful kind of balancing effect that you get when you have a neutral reserve asset, right? What this guy, Michael Hudson, does in his book from 1973 is describe, rather 71, is describe how the American government ended up like breaking the system and basically imposing <laughs> the U.S. Treasury as the reserve asset of the world. So we went from gold to the U.S. Treasury to, to American debt. And the book is a history of how that happened. And, you know, it goes through like the situational circumstances of World War One and how we were just much stronger afterwards and how we had the most gold and productivity and best position when it came to the Bretton Woods Agreement. And we got to have our way instead of the bank war, which is what Keynes wanted. He wanted like a internationally managed currency. Americans said, screw you, we're going to have the dollar backed by gold. So everybody started using dollars all around the world. 50s, 60s, the dollar had become hugely dominant. And then Nixon, you know, wanted to fight this war in Asia. Cold War was like at its peak. He ended up spending more money than we had. We had basically a run on gold, a run on the dollar. Like basically our gold reserves were, were drawn down. And he had to stop the redemptions. And in 68, Congress cut the dollar domestically from gold. And in 71, he cut us off from the international system in terms of other nations being able to redeem their dollars for gold. So we rug pulled the world. And we, 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 we had promised them that all these dollar liabilities they had were redeemable. And then we said, just kidding. So, you know, we entered into the seven post 71 political economy and it's been a fiat standard, right? Since then for, for about 50 years and super imperialism describes the mechanisms of that and kind of the, the upside of a superpower that's able to get its rivals to basically pay for its wars. It's a crazy thing that had never happened before. And then, you know, Hudson has updated the book a few times, including last year. So kind of uh, presages kind of maybe its demise eventually. But, you know, it's interesting because he comes at it from a very left-wing angle. I mean, this guy's like mm -hmm. no capitalist, let's put it that way. But, I mean, it's cool because he he sees the problems in the system and he sees the value even in gold as something that was a restraint against war, right? So I think it's really neat to, to try to pull on these, like, diverse historical uh, angles and and you know, super imperialism, as I like, is my last chapter because, or rather the end of super imperialism, because it, it's kind of pulls everything together and shows the macro view of how we got here. And then it talks about where we could go from here, if the system does indeed fray. And again, I'll just end by saying I'm a proud American. I think American values are amazing. I just, I'm just anti-dollar. So I think mm -hmm. this idea of being pro-American anti-dollar is something we need to continue to push in the coming years. Hmm. And along with checking your financial privilege, maybe <laughs> yes. we can meme that into existence yeah. as well. All right. So where can people find you? Where can people contact you? My DMs are open on Twitter at Gladstein, G-L-A-D-S-T-E-I-N. You can go to the Human Rights Foundation's website, href.org. You can find me at the Oslo Freedom Forum, where you will be joining us in Norway at the end of May. Tickets are available today. So we're going to have a killer freedom program, we're going to have a killer Bitcoin program. So you also come check it out if you're interested in a, a visit to an amazing place. And we'll probably have another event in New York City later in the year. But definitely recommend coming to Norway. Check it out at oslofreedomforum.com. And thanks for having me, Jimmy. Yeah, uh, you should definitely go to Oslo. That place is amazing, <laughs> very safe, very clean. And we had some pretty good steaks there. So, oh, yeah. You know. And they're free. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. free and open, <laughs> meaning there's no restrictions on anything. It's truly the Oslo Freedom Forum this year. So come check it out. Yeah, yeah. You don't you don't need a COVID test, vaccines <laughs> or anything. You exactly. can just get it. So that that's the key. All right. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks again. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to this company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig collaborative custody or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Alex Gladstein can be found at, at Gladstein on Twitter and hrf.org. Until next time, fiat the lenda est.